Our scripture passage today comes from John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Hear God's holy and infallible word. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. What do you have kept the good wine until now? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a moment of prayer. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the account of what Jesus came and said and did. We pray that your Holy Spirit would enliven your word to our hearts, that it would change us and mold us more into the image of Christ, that it would convict us and comfort us where we need convicting and comforting. Give us your spirit now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember, last week we, we were ending the chapter 1, and it kind of ended with this teeing up of what was going to come next. We've entered now into the ministry of Jesus. Jesus had been kind of introduced, and then we met John the Baptist, and then he called some disciples... And he said this to one of his disciples, Nathaniel, you will see greater things than these. After, after Nathaniel had believed in Jesus because he knew something special about him, some supernatural knowledge about Nathaniel before he came, he believed and Jesus said, you will see greater things than these. And it tees up this next section of John's gospel where Jesus is going to do greater things than that. This is the first sign, we're told, uh, the first sign that he has done, manifesting his glory. And it causes his disciples to believe in him. Remember, John's entire purpose of writing this down comes from John chapter 20. I'm going to tell you this every week. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I wrote these things down so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would have life. And so we see the impact of Jesus' sign on his disciples, that it causes them, those who have just come along, to see who Jesus is. Remember, they came because of a testimony of somebody else. They've come, and now they've seen this sign, and it has caused them to respond in faith, to believe in him. I've been trying to think of ways that we can bridge you know, some of the gap of, of the first century Jewish culture to our own and some of the things that are going on in this passage. And I can't help but think of Midwestern food culture. 
I don't know that I've ever been to a church potluck or to somebody's house or to any sort of cookout or barbecue or whatever you want to call it, and there has been a shortage of food, right? We go over and above any time we are hosting somebody else, right? We have somebody over to our house. Instead of making the typical dinner we'll make, we're going to do, you know, appetizers and a salad, and we're going to make three sides, and there's going to be dessert, and maybe we even pick up a bottle of wine. There's, it's like you go over and above, You bring somebody a meal who's getting out of the hospital. You know, there's only three people in their house, but you bring them enough for like 20 people so they can eat it for like a week. And, and the, we do this, and part of the reason we do this is, one, we wouldn't ever want to run out when we have guests over, but it also is a way that we tangibly show our love and care for people, both in the quantity and in the quality. Right? If we just showed up with a bag of McDonald's and gave it to the family in need, it wouldn't show a quantity and quality of love in the way that a home-cooked meal, that the cookies that you made with your family that you brought shows. Right? This, this tangibility of showing your love in quantity and in quality. Something similar going on in this passage. It's an embarrassing thing for this man to have run out of wine at his celebration of his wedding. We'll get into that a little bit more later, but it's, it's this idea of quantity and quality that I want us to continue to reflect on as we look at what this passage tells us about Jesus as the king. Remember, Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one, the son of God, who is coming to not just do good things, but to be the king. That's the anticipation. When you hear the word Christ, you should think king. And so as we look at what Jesus is going to say and do, we're learning about his kingdom and what kind of king he is. Now, this passage is probably one of the most familiar passages in all of the Bible. Uh, in fact, most of John is going to be very familiar to us. There's, there's lots of stories in here that just culturally we all know, right? Anybody knows Jesus turns water to wine. It's, I mean... There is not any more well-known fact about Jesus. And sometimes that's to our disadvantage. Familiarity with a passage can often numb us to what it really has to say. We become so familiar with it, it takes away some of the initial impact that it might have had. You know, we we don't experience this passage as it's read like the disciples would have experienced it as they saw it, and certainly we don't experience it in the way that we would have the first time we heard it. And so we have to do a little bit of extra work to remind ourselves of the depths of what this passage has for us, what it reveals to us about our King, Jesus Christ, and his kingdom. This is the first time Jesus manifested his glory, reveals his glory So I don't want to overlook the reality that Jesus performs this miracle. And we shouldn't be surprised, given the introduction we have at the beginning of John, right? He created all things. Nothing was created that wasn't created through him. And so we have this incredible sign that Jesus is able to take something super ordinary like water and turn it into something incredible like wine. He's able to transcend the laws of biology and physics. 
And to think about all of the work and time that would go into making wine. In a moment, Jesus is able to do far greater than we can think. But there are other relevant things to this passage. There are things that Jesus is drawing in, revealing about himself and his kingdom that we ought not to overlook. Because Jesus did very specific things in very specific places at very specific times for very specific reasons. And John wrote very specific things, not everything. Remember, he only wrote down some of what Jesus did. So John is writing this down for a purpose. And so why is it that this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Why start at a wedding? Why turn water to wine? Why cover up for the mistake of that man? Why is this the beginning of the revealing of God's glory, of Jesus' glory? The other thing I want to point out to us is that this is a sign. It says that this is his first sign. So that means that it's signifying something greater, right? We talk about our the Lord's Supper as being a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. Well, what we mean by that is that the bread and the wine signify Jesus' blood and body. Right? It's a sign to something greater. And so it is with this. This miracle isn't just a miracle for a miracle's sake. It is a sign of how great the Christ truly is. Now, this summer we went through a lot of parables. And in those, uh, we you know, looked at the various characters and tried to explain how they each show us a facet of God's kingdom. Now, those were made-up illustrations by Jesus. And there's something about that formulation of how we can understand passages that we will apply to things like his miracles. And then the only main difference here is that this is something that actually happened. So it's far greater than a parable. This is Jesus revealing himself in a public way, an embodied way, a tangible expression of his love and of his glory. And so what is the imagery that is being drawn out? Why is John beginning with this sign? Why is Jesus beginning his ministry at a wedding? There is a lot of imagery of weddings throughout Scripture. A lot of imagery of God and his people as being the bride and the bridegroom. Throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel were were often chastised for their idolatry, and it was called not just idolatry, but adultery or whoring after other gods. And the imagery that is being used is one of which they were married, right? God had married together with his people. They were his bride, and they were being unfaithful to that marriage. In fact, the whole book of Hosea is this prophet who marries a prostitute as this illustration of God's love for the one who's unfaithful to the marriage. That imagery doesn't stop at Hosea, it doesn't stop in the Old Testament, it continues on. In fact, that is the thing we most look forward to. Revelation chapter 19 talks about the fulfillment of all things when the marriage supper of the Lamb will take place. God talks to us 
about the church being the bride of Christ. Really familiar Bible passages about marriage. Here's one example. Sometimes we, we don't take the time to think through the imagery that's being said here. So Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The two shall become one flesh. All of this imagery of marriage, Paul says, I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. It certainly is applicable to us and to our marriages. That is the thrust of Ephesians 5, but it is rooted in the marriage between God and his people. And so the king shows up at a marriage feast. He tells us about himself and his kingdom we really have two points today. One is that Jesus is the greater bridegroom in quantity, and Jesus is the greater bridegroom in quality. They're inseparable in some ways. But think about what's happened here. This bridegroom who is celebrating the consummation of his marriage, right? Uh, this is a small town, hometown marriage nearby where Jesus and his disciples live. His mom is there. Everybody's been invited and he didn't do enough preparation and falls short. There's a failure here by the bridegroom in our story. And it wouldn't just be like, all right, the wine's gone. You know, we'll see you next week. You can come over to our house for the gift opening. You know, uh, it would have been a really big deal for the wine to run out. It would have been a scandalous event because they lived in a shame honor culture, which is different than ours. It's different than ours in that to invite somebody to a wedding, to a feast, to your house, and to not have prepared enough food and wine would have been a massive sign of disrespect. Why would you have even invited me if you weren't going to have enough for me? And in contrast to this bridegroom who fails to even provide enough, just the minimum, Right? Jesus provides a lot. Six jars that hold 20 to 30 gallons each. Okay, so 25 gallons, we'll just wreck. That's 150 gallons of wine filled to the brim. Jesus is not going to run out of wine. He doesn't just show up and give a sufficient amount. Jesus' kingdom, our king, gives abundantly. He's the bridegroom who is far greater in quantity. It's an abundance. It is way too much. It is overflowing. But it's just wine. Unless we think a bit more about the imagery of what wine is like. What does wine represent throughout Scripture except for God's blessing? And as Jesus is being shown here as the king who's coming to usher in the new kingdom... 
a sign of what his kingdom is like. It is an abundance, 150 gallons of God's blessing. Never to run out, always to be available. Jesus is the greater bridegroom, and his kingdom is greater than the one that we've known. They have no wine. It's almost as if the old, what has been, God's been doing in the past, it's been a glimpse of what's going to happen, right? They have no wine left, as Mary says. And Jesus comes and shows up, and he brings it in abundance. The blessing that people have received has been limited, and now it is coming in a way fuller and more abundant, overflowing sense through Jesus Christ. But more important than quantity is quality, and Jesus is the greater bridegroom in quality. His kingdom is greater than the old kingdom. He turns the ordinary water into wine. He takes plain things and makes them extraordinary. And he doesn't just make cheap wine. He makes the good wine that's too expensive to buy that much of, right? Jesus, this, this comment here from the bridegroom and the master of the ceremony, it's like, why are you saving the good wine for later? Like, you're supposed to serve the good stuff at the beginning. And so it is with the kingdom of God. As Jesus is coming, he's not just coming to bring, you know, the last little bit for the Gentiles. He's not just coming to bring a little bit more wine for us. He's coming to bring the best wine. The book of Hebrews talks about in times past, God spoke to his people in various ways through his prophets. But now he speaks to us through his son. The new wine is good wine. It's better wine. It's the best wine. God's blessing has been elevated through Christ, the greater bridegroom. We have this really interesting interchange between Jesus and his mother. There's been a lot of talk about it throughout the history of the church. I'm not going to promise you I'm going to give you the greatest way to hold it all together, but just to make some observations and to tell you why this all matters. What is this passage revealing to us about Jesus? Why does he do this? Why does he respond to her in the way he does? You know, I'm not sure what Mary is expecting him to do when the wine runs out. She's like, hey, Jesus, the wine's gone. What's that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, that phrase is an important phrase throughout the Gospels. The hour of Jesus is when he's going to fully reveal who he is, right? And when he fully reveals who he is, what's going to happen to him? His hour will come and he'll be put to death. So Jesus is, in some ways, responding to her like, it's not my time to die yet. And there must have been some interchange there where he also seems to you know, give a wink that he'll do something about the situation. And so the way that Jesus uh, responds to this situation is important for us. It tells us a lot about him and about his kingdom. You see, he doesn't just stand up and make himself glorious. 
Instead, he does something much more secretive. Right? The only people that know where the wine came from are his disciples, his mom, and the servants. All of the guests who are there that are going to drink about this wine, the master of the sermon, the bridegroom himself doesn't even know where it has come from. Jesus reveals his glory in a secretive, partial way. And he does so for the sake of the other bridegroom, the one who has failed, the one who is shameful, the one who has not prepared for his guests. Jesus steps in and covers over his failure and his shame. He's the greater bridegroom in redemption. This bridegroom who has failed, who his marriage is to be started publicly in this neighborhood that they live in, and all of a sudden it's going to be this great blight on them. They ran out of wine at their wedding. Nobody knows about it except for Jesus and his mom. And he covers the shame of this man. Interesting that is the water that's being used for this covering is also water that would have been used for purification. Right? These pots are there so that people can wash their hands really thoroughly so they don't become ceremonially unclean. And Jesus uses that water that purification water, the cleansing water, turns it into the blessing of God's kingdom, this wine imagery, and he uses it to cover the shame and failure of the bridegroom. He manifests his glory to his disciples, and they believe in him. He's got the power to change water into wine, but he's also revealing how glorious he is as the one who is greater, not in just quantity and quality, but in redemption. We can hold our lives together pretty well. We live in a time where food is very abundant. Like, we're not running out of food, and if we are, you just gotta, you know, text your Uber Eats or whatever, and you got more on the way. We go to Costco and get the bigger bag if we know people are coming over. There are people that followed after Jesus to get food and wine. He rebukes them for that. We don't really have that need. We don't come to church expecting, you know, I've got the best food. We don't have that great of food, sorry. The disciples are following Jesus for a different reason. And when it says that they believed in him, they believed in him as the one who can provide the quantity and the quality of the thing that they don't have. They have no wine, is what Mary says about the guests at the wedding. We have no wine in terms of our standing in the kingdom of God. Jesus is able to provide the quantity and the quality of the thing that we need most. Not just wine, not just bread, not just good teaching. Jesus doesn't just do this miracle to be a nice guy. It's like, I'm going to make it, I'm going to be nice to this guy. It's just out of my pity for him. 
Remember, this is a marriage feast, and Jesus is being shown as the greater bridegroom. And so the things he does, the blessings that he gives to us, the quantity and the quality that he gives to us is birth out of his love for us. God, remember our assurance of pardon? God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He shows his love for us. Like a bridegroom on the day of his wedding is exploding in love for his bride, so God's love for us is shown in this. Our inability to stand in God's kingdom, to be part of what Jesus is going to be doing, the new kingdom he's ushering in, we can have no standing in on our own. Sometimes we think about good deeds and bad deeds. And we fall into the lie that if we do enough good deeds, if we have enough quantity, we're going to get into the kingdom. That is a lie. That is not what the Bible has ever taught throughout the history of God's redemption. There is no scale in which you're going to put good deeds and bad deeds. And the truth is, even if we had quantity, the quality of our deeds would make the scales never land in our favor. Because even the good things we do are tainted by our sin. And so our standing in the kingdom requires a great quantity of goodness and a great quality of righteousness that we cannot find on our own. We can only find it in the bridegroom who covers over our failures and our shame. Jesus, who lived the perfect life, meriting all of our standing in his kingdom, given to us in abundant quantity, 150 gallons of God's blessing to you and to me. The good wine, the better wine. He saved it for last because he loves us and he pours it out for us in tangible ways. We see his love for us in the quantity and the quality of his righteousness. And he covers us over, not with just purification water, but with the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. Came at great cost. We can never have enough quantity and quality on our own. Even if we tried, we're just gathering stuff that doesn't matter because it has to come from somebody greater than us. Jesus' blood is the only thing that can wash us, that can cover that shame, that can cover our failures and cover our sins and give us his righteousness. As we come and look forward to the wedding feast of the Lamb, sometimes we read those passages and we don't think too deeply about them. We think, man, that's going to be great to be there. What a glorious feast in heaven. But we're not just going to be there. We're not just one of the people that gets the glass of wine. We are the bride. We are the guest of honor. We are the one whom Jesus is waiting to love.
May we stop beating ourselves up about coming up with quantity and quality. May we stop trying to redeem ourselves and earn our way to God. And may we look at Jesus as he reveals, he manifests his glory. And may it cause us to believe in him, our great king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your abundant mercy and grace. We thank you that you are the greater bridegroom. You give us what we cannot have on our own. Lord, help us to see Jesus' glory, to believe in him, to trust in his covering over us. We pray in his name. Amen.